Hello and welcome to Chaplain's Word of the Day. I'm Chaplain Otis Corbett and I invite you to come along with me as we explore God's Word so that we can be inspired, challenged, and comforted together. Hello, I'm Otis Corbett, and today I want to share a word about the crown as I comment on Psalm 24. This passage reads, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. Selah. Now this is the third psalm in what has been called the a holy trilogy in the Psalms. We've already looked at Psalm 22, which is called the cross. We've also looked at Psalm 23, which is called the crook. And today we look at Psalm 24, which is entitled the crown. Each of these is messianic Psalms. They tell of Christ and his life and work. And they also, of course, applied in the day that David wrote them uh, himself. So it's a multifaceted uh, passage of scripture, which is what makes the Psalms, again, so fascinating. These three psalms are thought to be messianic by the nature of their content or because the New Testament writers or Jesus himself referred to them to teach about Christ. And of course, this psalm fits in both ways. As we looked at Psalm 22, David was telling of his vision of Christ on the cross. And this is a look into the past to remind us of what Christ did for us. For us, it's a look into the past. For him, it was a look, of course, into the future. Uh, last week, we looked at the 23rd Psalm, which is a vision of what God does for us on a daily basis through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This was a factor in, in David's life, too, because uh, the Lord was his shepherd as well as our shepherd. And this is what is happening right now in the lives of those who believe in God and trust in Him and who are a part of His family and a part of His sheepfold. But today we look at Psalm 24, and this gives us a glimpse into the future we have in Jesus. And this is important because for us in the United States, we are very, very proud of our independence. We're very, very proud of our uh, democracy. And, and rightfully so. Amongst nations, we have a great legacy. And so we need to celebrate that this 4th of July week. But we also must remember what um, 
Winston Churchill said about democracy. He said, democracy is the worst form of government in the world except all the rest. And, and really, we need to remember that because we need to worship our God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We need to enjoy our independence. We need to enjoy our democracy. We need to enjoy the freedoms we have here, but we need to enjoy them in a way that reminds ourselves that ultimately there is one King of kings and Lord of lords, and it is not us. It is Jesus. And that is what we see here in the 24th Psalm, the crown. In verses 1 and 2, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we'll see the Creator's possession. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For He hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. You know, we talk a lot about what we own. We talk about our families. Uh, we talk about our churches. We talk about our schools, our homes, our cars, our boats. We talk about our sports teams. It's interesting how the sidewalk alumni of a school are often the most outspoken fans of that school's sporting teams. We talk a lot about what we own, <laughs> but the truth is it all belongs to God because what we know is He owns it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But as I like to remind us, we, he not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he owns the hills too. He owns the gold under the hills and the oil under the gold. And somewhere in there, he owns the uranium as well. He owns it all. It all belongs to him. And not only does the world belong to him, our families belong to him. Our churches belong to him. And we belong to him. I once had a pastor who loved automobiles. He really was an automobile fanatic, now, not in a bad way, but he really did love cars. And one day when he'd come out of a restaurant where he'd been eating with his associate pastor and, and some other church staff members, he found someone had taken a key and had scratched a long scratch along the side of his pristine automobile. That car had been keyed in the vernacular. And he started to get upset, and then his associate pastor reminded him that he really didn't own that car. That car had been given to him by God. And that if God wanted to redecorate that car, then it's up to God to do it. And it gave our pastor a different perspective. Now, why does he own everything? Because he made it. He created it. Without Jesus, there would be nothing. In Him, there is everything imaginable, but without Him, there would be everything unimaginable because we couldn't imagine. It would not be here. And so He deserves the honor and the glory. He's the one that it deserves to gain the increase from investments. He's the one that planted the seed and then caused the sun and uh, the water to germinate them and to grow. In our families, He gave us children that we raise. In our uh, careers, He gives us the jobs that causes us to have the ability to buy things like car automobiles and computers and, and even to feed our families. And truth be told, we're only the stewards of what God has given us. The first thing we see in this psalm is the Creator's 
possessions. Next, though, in verses six, uh, three through six, we see the Christian's position. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of him that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Now the psalmist was absolutely stunned by the majesty and authority of God. He said, who can approach God? Who has the standing to be in the uh, face of God or to see the face of God? Who has the standing to be in the presence of one like him? Um, we all who enjoy sports imagine ourselves playing sports on a very high level. But here's the truth. Have you ever tried to uh, hit a pitch from someone who can throw at the major league level? In, a, in some minor league baseball parks, they have the opportunity to go into a batting cage and to try to hit a ball being propelled to them across the plate at major league speeds. In fact, it's not even really major league speeds. It's actually much less than that, maybe 30% less than a major league pitcher can throw. It's, it's really very embarrassing because you just can't do it. Uh, Ted Williams said that hitting in, in baseball is a simple task. All you have to do is hit a round ball with a round bat squarely. <laughs> you know, that's why in college and high school they have aluminum bats now. Uh, but if you've tried to do that, you can just see how inadequate you are as a person who plays baseball or softball. And that same feeling came across in this passage as the psalmist looked and was awed by God. And in fact, as the psalmist saw and as the scriptures relate, anyone with, who has sin in their lives, any ordinary person who sees God will die. You see, the psalmist asked his own question, answered his own question. Who can approach God? And the answer is only the person with clean hands, only the person who has not sinned against God, only the person who has not sinned against other people, only the person that has not sinned against themselves. In truth, what he was saying was only the person that has kept God's laws completely can approach God with confidence. But here's a fact. This is not possible. We know the scriptures tell us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. And so the psalmist was, was impressed with God and overawed by God, but he also saw that God is the source of the power for coming to him. Our power to approach the presence of God comes from God himself. It is his power that brings us salvation. It is his power that makes us righteous, both practically and positionally. It's him who knows how to make us right. Um, and it's not a very pleasant task. Our sin is like filthy rags. 
And Jesus had to die on the cross so that we could have the righteousness to approach God. After, though, we have righteousness, we have some additional blessings. The privilege to ascend unto the hill of the Lord, to be with Him in His holy place, both here on earth and in heaven. Here on earth, we have access to God in prayer and worship and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And after death, if we are in Christ, if we are covered in the blood, if we are able to have His righteousness imputed upon us, we are gathered into Jacob's bosom. So we see the possession of the Christ um, of the Creator in this passage. Uh, we see the position of the Christian, the Christian's position in this passage. And now in verses 7 through 10, we see the crowning of the King in this passage. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. You know, one of the big issues in our country, the United States, is that we began, we initiated ourselves out of rebellion. It's an interesting fact that we actually had an army before we had a nation. We had a Declaration of Independence in 1776, the 4th of July, but we had an army in 1775. So we began in rebellion. And that has, in many ways, hindered us from that day forward. We've overcome it in many ways with our founding documents and some other procedures, but the fact is we began in rebellion. And this world is in rebellion against God. It's broken. It's sinful. It does not work totally as it was intended. Most of the world works like it was intended, but it's been placed off balance by human sin. People are sinful and we do wrong things. And often people seem righteous on the outside, <laughs> but rebellious on the inside. I have a family member who was an, uh, who used to be a hippie, he used to wear long hair, literally in the 60s, and beads and sandals. And uh, later on, <laughs> as he uh, grew up in a way, as he matured, uh, he actually got involved in business. And he actually became a business executive in corporations working in IT, information technology. And uh, he had to wear a suit and tie to work. But as he told me, he said, I may be wearing a suit and tie on the outside, but on the inside, I'm wearing beads and sandals. Many times that's the way we are. We are looking out from the outside as respectable people, but on the inside, we are sinful and rebellious against God. And although rebellion is currently flourishing, God will prevail. See, God is strong and mighty. He is mighty in battle. He is the 
king of glory. He will win and he will win decisively. There will be no mistaking his victory. Remember what we saw in the 23rd Psalm, how he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. <laughs> See, he doesn't even, you know, he can win that battle with one hand tied behind his back or one hand feeding us and the other hand defeating our enemies. He is the God who is mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. He will win and win decisively. There'll be no mistaking his victory. Everyone then will know who God is and what he will do. The scriptures say that uh, in the days to come, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. When Christ wins the ultimate victory of battle, he's already won the victory, but when he fights his ultimate battle, he will claim his rule over creation. He will claim his rule over the hearts of people, and he will claim his rule over eternity, over eternity because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. On this 4th of July week, it might be interesting to remember what General George S. Patton said. He said, Americans love a winner and will not abide a loser. I wouldn't give a hoot, he said, for a man who lost and laughed. Well, God is the ultimate winner. And today we have a chance to commit our lives to him and to be on his side in the fight. Will you commit yourselves today to be on God's side? He's calling you to be on his side. He's calling you to be on his side both here in the here and now and in the hereafter. He wants you to be a part of his victorious army. And the best part about that army is we don't even have to fight the war. Our king will fight it for us. Will you answer his call today? Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with another portion of God's Word that we can consider together. Every blessing, I'm Chaplain Otis Corbett.